Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 3 and beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you who have given yourself for us and ascended on high and poured out the Spirit, you said that you would not leave us orphans, you would come to us, so come by the Spirit of Christ. Enable us to worship you, not only here in the reading, but in the preaching and the hearing of your word. And cause that word to go to our hearts, that we may bring forth the fruits of it, to the praise of the glory of your grace, and for our eternal good. Open our eyes and ears and illumine our minds, we pray. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, on October 31st, we remember the greatest work of revival in the history of the church next to Pentecost. Uh, It's known, of course, as the Protestant Reformation, uh, dated from October 31st, 1517, because that was the date on which Martin Luther nailed those uh, famous uh, 95 theses or 95 statements to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it's not extraordinary because he nailed him to the door. You know, if you came up here to Pinehaven, somebody nailed something to the door, you know, you, the deacons would be out in a hurry. You know, who in the world has done this? You know, well, this was the normal place for uh, uh, posting uh, you know, announcements and that sort of thing. And of course, it was written in Latin, the language of scholarship, and he had thought that this would be for debate among the, the faculty uh, there. And the, the, the main, the, the big idea here, the main thing that kicked this all off was the, these theses had to do with the largely, uh, uh, the, the widely used, the abused and unbiblical practice of selling indulgences. Now, we'll get more on that uh, later. Uh, you may think here this morning, though, that this is this happened 15 who? 15, 17? That was a long time ago. And it may think it's a little bit antiquated and obscure, but I assure you that the, the, the issue is very much contemporary because the core of the controversy then and the, the core at, at the very heart of all religion is the great and foremost single fundamental of questions. How can a man be right with God? How can a man be just with the Holy One? And the answer to this question is absolutely crucial. Uh, Luther would write 
the article of justification is master and chief, Lord, ruler, and judge above every kind of doctrine which preserves and directs every doctrine of the church. He, he didn't overstate the case when he said the article, this is the article of a standing or falling church. And I tell you that there are a lot of folks who need to evaluate very seriously, very carefully what they have been taught by the standard of God's holy word on this issue of justification. How do we get right with God? Now, why is that question in this article so crucial? Because the answer to this question, how do we get right with God? The answer to what is being taught concerning this article determines whether there's true Christianity or some perverse aberration of it. It determines whether men and women and boys and girls are being led down the primrose path that leads to destruction, the wide way, or through the narrow gate, straight gate, and the narrow way that leads to life. It has to do with whether God's grace is supremely glorified, whether Christ's work is supremely glorified and sufficient. These important issues. Well, what is the ultimate and effective cause of justification? What is the ultimate and effective cause of justification? What is the, the fountain out of which it comes? I hope you keep your Bibles open, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, y'all probably, many of you probably have that memorized, but look at the words that follow. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption is in Christ Jesus. Now, the apostle here is writing of a righteousness of God which is separate from human performance, separate from I think I can, I think I can, I'm doing the best I can. A righteousness that does not come through our own personal obedience to the law of God, doesn't come through human achievement. This righteousness, which comes from God, has been pointed at, he says, and explicated all through the Old Testament law and the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Well, what is it? It is, as he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But you see, this begs the question, why? Why should God justify wretched rebels? Why does he pardon transgressors? Again, it points us back to the fountain of all of this. Sinners are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the answer to the question, the ultimate and effective cause of justification is God's free grace. Now, none of you will ever really grasp or understand being justified freely by his grace, verse 24, until you first personally, personally, individually, feel the weight in your own conscience of what he says in verse 23. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
Because you see that earlier question we asked, how can man be just with God, is really a whole lot more complicated. The question really is, how can sinful man be right or just with God? How can men who are all wrong be right with God? No one will really get grasp why we must be justified freely by grace alone. That's a bit redundant. It's like a born-again Christian. It's like, are there, is there any other kind? Well, this is freely by grace. Obviously, the apostles emphasizing this through faith alone. We can't understand until we come to grip that we are all wrong with God. You know, you, you, you read, a um, brother read in Genesis 6, God saw that the, it's 6-5, right? That the iniquity of men was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whoa. And after the flood, by the way, you don't find that the flood judgment cured that. Now, my friends, we uh, don't live in a day when people think that there's something hugely wrong with me personally. We, we live in a day of you know, pluralism, everybody's got different strokes for different folks, different manners of life, different opinions, different views. And, and these are all relative. That is, they are all to be treated as equally valid. We're all okay. But God's word reveals that we stand in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. Let me press this lesson a bit. Um, uh, firstly, God's desperate, uh, man's desperate condition is in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. And I know there's a double desperate there, but I want to press that on it. The Spirit of God declares that men are all wrong with God. In Romans 1 through 18, this is how Paul begins his gospel. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All those people, the Gentiles, who did not have the law of God, they had God's who he is and his will for them into their very nature, revealed in their very nature. They were made in the image of God. It's the entire creation has got the imprint of the brushstrokes of the master that is upon creation. But instead of worshiping and serving and being obedient and being thankful to this God, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they make, basically, Paul talks about totem poles and make idols and they give themselves into immorality. And all the Jews, as Paul was preaching this and writing this, they're going, yeah, you tell those nasty Gentiles, sick them, go get them, go get them. And Paul then turns to them and says, well, look, you had the law, you had the old Old Testament, but you didn't keep it. And then he summarizes in chapter 3 and verse 9, for we previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. Look in verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, because of this, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you understand what the, the, the weight of what the scripture is telling us and saying to us? That all mankind comes into this world 
with a sinful fallen nature. But there's more. All men and women do themselves actually sin. We actually transgress the law. The law says no trespassing. Mom and dad say, don't go over there and touch that. And we grin and walk right on through that fence and do it anyway. We fall short. God says, be perfect as I'm perfect. We fall short of God's perfection and the perfect standard of holiness reflecting his law. But there's more. Not only is the world guilty before God, but we have so incapacitated ourselves that we can't deliver ourselves from this sinful, corrupt, and guilty, and condemned position before this God because of our sin by the deeds of the law. No flesh will be justified in his sight. Now think about that, my friends. This is truly a desperate condition. How can anyone be right with God? And I'm convinced that the reason why this grand article of justification does not send off fireworks of rejoicing, does not cause tears of joy to stream down the cheeks of Christians, doesn't melt the heart of the lost. And indeed, this grand truth is seldom heard in churches. Just of a who, but, you know, that's big theological worlds, you know. Not so many years ago, they, there was some big uh, evangelical conference. I think it was National Association of Evangelicals. I can't remember. Uh, down in Dallas, and they were out there with the microphone and saying, you know, what is justification? And, and uh, how are you going to be right with God? And people say, well, I'm doing my best. And, and uh, justif- you know, they didn't know. And they, this, wasn't, this wasn't in the streets of the left coast or the right coast. This was where evangelicals were. They didn't know. We haven't, this doesn't melt our hearts. It doesn't fire up Christians because we've not come face to face with the God of majestic holiness. You know Isaiah 6. Isaiah's a prophet. He's one of the good guys. And he beholds the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Habakkuk, the prophet in the Old Testament, he's he's filled with righteous indignation. He looks upon the nation like many of us look upon our own nation. He says, you know, there's hot and cold running iniquity everywhere I turn. And about the time I think I've seen and heard it all, something more, something greater arises. He says, God, what are you going to come down here and do something about this? I'm going to go take my watch and I'm going to wait to see what God says he's going to do about this. Habakkuk does hear from God. And his response is, my body trembled. My lips quivered. Rottenness filled my bones. I trembled within myself. You see, God would be less than God if he didn't burn in holy anger at purposeful transgression against the revelation of his holy character in the law. Now, some of the people right away will say to me, oh, yes, 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 have I heard all this before? We've all done something wrong, you know, or other. You know, my, my brother's four years younger than me, you know, and you hit him and you hit him and you hit him, and then you do the fake hit, right? 
And he responds, wham! You know, Dad, look, he hit me. <laughs> well, we've all done some of that sometime or other, right? Don't so easily dismiss and minimize this. You have walked in crooked paths. You have fallen short, missed the mark. God says that the best that you do is that filthy rags in his sight. Okay, 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 enough, enough, enough. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to start doing what God likes. I'll obey his law. I'll do better. But what does the scripture says? By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We only deserve condemnation. We're unable in and of ourselves to have some grounds of approval before God. Now, but what do most folks think? Well, you know, ladies say to their husbands, you know, hubby, you ought to love me because I'm so lovable. I cook so well. I'm so beautiful. And the guys say, well, you know, hey, uh, make a living and love you and defend you. And, and I'm so handsome. I'm so masculine. You know, I guess you can still say that today, right? <laughs> Can we say that to God? Can we move God to pardon by that? Can we, can we make up for our rebellion and transgression through these things? The old hymn writer, you know, people don't like to... Would he bestow that sacred head for such a wretch as I? Filthy, vile, helpless, we, spotless lamb of God was he. You see, this is man's desperate condition. Let me take you back a bit of an illustration again with Luther. You know, that whole date on the 31st began with a young man, Luther, whom the Lord made to know and to feel by his spirit his own sin and undoneness before God, his estrangement from God. And Luther, you know, the, the story is that lightning struck nearby and he was cast to the ground. He says, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And uh, the reason, uh, uh, you know, St. Anne's patron saint of minors, his dad was a minor's dad, had sent him off to, uh, to uh, law school so he'd be able to support dad mom in their old age. And uh, when he's cast the ground, he says, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. You're sitting there going, well, I can think of a lot of things that I might think or say. If lightning struck near me and close enough to knock me to the ground, what I might do? Well, why did he do that? Well, I believe there's, a, there's, an old wood, there's some old woodcuts and everything that kind of give you the mindset that was there among those folks at that time. And the, the uh, mindset uh, in this woodcut is that there is this, this ship and it's the church. And it's sailing, sailing through stormy seas, okay? And who's in the boat? The Pope, cardinals, bishops, archbishops, the priests, the monks and the nuns. Who's not in the boat? Any of us regular folks. <laughs> We're being pulled down into perdition in the water by the demons. And so you want to make sure that you, you know, get your ticket ready to be punched by St. Peter at the pearly gates. You became a monk or a nun. So Luther tries all of that. 
He, the disciplines of the monastic order, uh, the, the, the poverty, he's never going to do anything but that cow, chastity, never going to get married, uh, obedience. Uh, he would confess his sins to a confessor. He's a lawyer by training, so he confessed all day long, early in the morning until late at night. And uh, he'd just exhaust these guys. And then to his chagrin, he'd get out, and he'd, I remember one day he forgot. And he'd been told, well, hey, unless you confess your sin, absolved, and assign a penance, you're still liable. So he says that he tried all those mortifications, fasting, uh, vigils, sleeping without covers in the cold German winters. And uh, you know, Staupitz, his superior, says, I, I know I've got a problem with this young man. And so he advised him to go the way of mysticism. Just lose yourself in God. Just love God. But Luther could not. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Is not the reality that there are many around us, maybe some of us here today, who have done far, far less than a Luther, but presume, but assume that all is well between them and God. You say, but, but pastor, if this is true and you've only told me what the scripture says, then I truly have no hope in myself and what I do, but I can only cry out to God for mercy. If that's where your conclusion comes, exactly. That's exactly proper and true. The free grace of God is the ultimate and effective cause of justification. God doesn't owe us pardon. We can't put him in debt to ourselves. That's the reason why Paul speaks of being justified freely by his grace. And you've heard the acrostic, right? G-R-A-C-E. Great riches at Christ's expense. And then there's a wonderful addition, great riches at Christ's expense, that uh, Dr. Derek Thomas puts onto that. And I think it's something to the effect to wretched sinners who deserve hell. <laughs> and he's got it exactly right. Justification is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons us. Our sins accepts us as righteous. God, the holy judge, does this in spite of what we deserve. Robert Murray McShane said, Clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of dependence on another's righteousness. Therefore, strange to say, of a Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. How precious, how precious is God's grace to you? Second thing here, very quickly, redemption that is in Christ is the only ground of justification. First moving cause, God's grace, the only ground is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans 3.24 
He says that justification is a gift of God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The procuring, the purchasing cause of justification, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption is one of those big, uh, great big biblical words that I know every, you know, evening, you know, you're sitting around the table. Uh, if it's not between soccer and baseball or band or choir or something like that, and you got yourself and the kids and you just can say, what's the subject this evening, uh, honey? Well, we're going to talk about redemption. Probably not. But it's a very biblical word. It tells us what Christ did on the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon us. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We're taught that Jesus Christ, redemption, paid the price. It's as if the Passover lamb, it's a wonderful picture in the Old Testament, right? And the death angel's coming. God's judgment is coming. And the firstborn everywhere, in lieu of all, are going to be taken. How can they be saved? Well, this spotless, without blemish lamb is the substitute. It's killed. The blood is applied, the doorposts and the lintel. And the death, the wrath of God passes over. Christ Jesus paid the price. Our sins incurred a debt. The wages of sin is death. Christ paid that price. Think about this now. I know that a lot of this is common ground, uh, uh, common places that you have been to many times, and you understand that. And if you're a little bit older, you heard this when you were in Sunday school and your mom and dad's knee. That's grand. But you realize that God could exact this price at any time. Isn't there not? And an immediacy to this that demands your attention. He could have not only at any time demanded the price, but he could have demanded that price from you personally. Indeed, you're the one that broke the law. He's the holy God with whom you have to do. He could demand that you personally pay. But then he could have allowed a substitute. But who could be found? Parents love their children. Sometimes they see them going in paths that just break their hearts. But they can't undo what they have done. No matter what their heart love and compassion for them is. You see, God not only allowed a substitute, but he provided a substitute. The only qualified substitute, his own dear son. And Christ came here below and lived that life of perfect righteousness, died upon the cross, a ransom for our sins, shedding his blood. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give us his life, a ransom for many. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9, 15 speaks of the Redemption of the transgression made under the first covenant. Isaiah 53, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So to you and me, justification is free, free grace. But to God, justification is costly. The highest possible price, the blood of the eternal son of God. Redemption is effected by the payment of a ransom. Do you prize 
redemption purchased by Jesus Christ? Is it seen in your life that you prize that work of his? Another great Bible word about what Christ did on the cross is propitiation. It's in Romans 3.25, our text, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood. Now, I know, again, that's not one of those words that you sit around the table and talk about. It's personally unknown. But And, of course, a lot of people don't want to talk about that. But I tell you, this is what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to write And what is arguably the diamond of the Bible in this book, and at the center of what he is teaching us, is this matter of how sinners get right with God, justification. The grand illustration of this idea of propitiation, I believe, is on the Day of Atonement back in Luke 16. And you remember there were two goats once a year. If you got some Jewish friends, Yom Kippur, they can't celebrate that biblically, but they still want to observe the day. What happened to the Old Testament on that day? Here's the high priest, and he's got on his chest, he's got this ephod, and it's got all the tribes inscribed on these stones there upon it. He represents them. And there's two goats. One of them, of course, you see, puts his hand upon its head. The whole idea of substitution. He confesses all the sins of the people. What a sight. What a time that must have taken as all were gathered around. Then this, this goat is taken and let out into the wilderness. God casting our sins behind his back. Well, how can he do that? Because of what happened to the other goat. Whenever you came to the temple or the tabernacle, what's the first thing you see? is this huge bronze altar. The fiery wrath of God implemized there. And here, this animal, its blood is shed, and it is consumed, this picture of the wrath of God. And the priest comes in with this blood into the Holy of Holies, just once a year, all by himself, representing God's people, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. I know you've all seen it because I saw it the other day on the movie, right? Right. Anyway, you get the picture of what's there, though. What's inside the box? Not ghosts and all this kind of stuff like the movies, but the, among other things, most importantly, the tablets of the law, the very law representing God's righteousness and holiness, which we have broken. And what's on top of it? The mercy seat. And he takes this blood and he sprinkles it upon the mercy seat. There is a washing. There is a covering of our sins. What does Christ do upon the cross? Towards God, propitiation. The soul that sins, it must die. Cursed is everyone who Hangs on a cross. There's Christ hanging on the cross in our place for us, undergoing the wrath of God which we ought to undergo. And he perfectly satisfies the demands of God's good justice. And then, what you sang about when you were a little kid, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Propitiation, expiation. And when the demands of God's justice and law are taken out of the way and I am washed clean, there is reconciliation with God.
When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We are reconciled. We have peace through the blood of his cross. The ground of justification is Christ's Christ's redemptive, atoning, propitiating accomplishment. Now, let me ask you a question. We've got some guys here from seminary, but it applies to us all. If the pulpit and the Bible study speak only of the horizontal effects of sin, you know, when you sin, it affects you, affects your relationships. And if we diminish even that to maladjustment, And we fail to define sin in terms of God's law, and God's law is a reflection of his own righteousness and holiness, then where are we? Will such persons have a clear conviction of sin? And if they will not, they do not, will they depend upon the righteousness of Christ? Will Christ's redemption and expiation, propitiation be exalted? Will it be seen as absolutely necessary? Here is this ground of justification in Christ's accomplishment. Third thing, gracious gift of faith is the sole instrument through which we are justified. Step back into time with Luther again in the 1500s there. Here was this guy who tried all this stuff, wasn't right with God, actually hated God because no matter what he did, God condemned him. That part of it, not the hating, but understanding no matter what he did, God condemned him. He got right. And so Staupitz sends him to study the scriptures. He becomes an Augustinian doctor of theology. Here he is, when he goes to the scriptures, he discovers the gospel, rediscovers it. And he lectures through the Psalms, and he comes to Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know why, because we've just seen it was redemption, it was propitiation, and there was Christ standing in my place. That's what's going on. But Luther says, look, I can understand why God would forsake me. I drink iniquity like water, but why would he forsake his own dear son? And then he comes to know that he who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But how? How do I become the righteousness of God in him? How do I receive this? And he lectures through Galatians and Romans and Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. It's for everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as is written. The just shall live by faith. Luther says, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Do you understand? Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, have gone through open doors into paradise. He says, I've always been taught when I read that phrase, the righteousness of God. That's God is righteous and holy and you're not, so therefore he condemns you. But then he says, this is the righteousness of God in the gospel. A God-approved, God-provided righteousness that is all wrapped up in Christ. 
And how shall I receive it? By faith, trusting in him. And Paul says this over and over, 322. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Verse 25, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through his, by his blood through faith. Verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, where is boasting then it is included by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. By faith. Faith is a receptive cause of justification. Now, it's not as if God said in the Old Testament, be perfect, here's the law of God. And everybody is failing that test. And so he kind of says, well, you know, let's lower the bar. <laughs> let's make it by faith, and everybody can step over that low rung, and that'll be it. It's like, like faith is in lieu of perfect righteousness. No. Scripture never speaks of being justified by faith or through faith or upon believing. Excuse me, it, it, it does always speak of by faith, through faith, and upon our believing. But it never speaks as if faith was the meritorious cause of this. Christ merits and earns that. We're justified by faith alone. Now, Christ gives the double benefit, not only pardons our sins, but he changes men and women. But it's not on account of the change, the fruits of faith that come forth, that these somehow pay for my sins. It's not faith plus baptism. You probably have some friends who are in churches that believe that. Or some other religious act. It's by faith alone, and faith has its object, Jesus Christ and it is the gift of God. Well, the final cause of justification is the glory of God. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And there God displays his mercy and love and grace and his righteousness and holiness. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. Let's just forget it all happened. He doesn't forget his justice and the demands of his law. Let's accept something less than perfect righteousness. No, we're received on the basis of Christ, and therefore God gets all the glory. Well, there are a lot larger forces at work with Luther in his day. The House of Hohenzollern, uh, there's a young man named Albert. He was underage to be a bishop, but he already held two of them, and he wanted a third one so he could be primate of all Germany. And you think, who in the world wants to be, pay money to be a preacher? Preachers are poor. You know? Well, vast lands, vast wealth, vast power went through this. Only problem is, he didn't have the money to pay for it. But Pope Leo X was in a selling mood. See, he and his predecessors had ran the Vatican into bankruptcy, and St. Peter's Basilica, this new grand thing, was sitting over there growing up in weeds. So where are we going to get the money to do this? Well, we'll sell it. We'll sell this ecclesiastical office. It's called Simony from Simon Magus and Acts. You can look it up. Well, how was Albert going to finance this? Well, he borrows money from the Jewish House of Fugers at usurious rates. And how are we going to pay it back? 
Well, we'll have an indulgence. An indulgence is a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? You can get your sins forgiven. And this wasn't just a few sins, maybe five years old. The idea was is that you got better and better and better. It's bad English. Gooder and gooder and gooder. One day you got good enough to enter into heaven. And if you, didn't, if you still had some sins you hadn't quite worked off, then you go to purgatory, and it's not exactly hell, and it's not exactly heaven, it's kind of a warming oven, and you work off all of this stuff. Well, here's a way to get them out, okay? And so Tetzel, who's a Dominican monk, is selling these things like a used car lot salesman. And he's saying, look, can't you hear the voice of your dear mother, your father, your favorite aunt, who has died, and there they are in purgatory suffering, and for just a piece of money you could reach in your pocket, and they could be set free for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. And of course, some of the people from Luther's parish crossed the river from Saxony over to where they're doing that. And I guess it's Oktoberfest because you know what Germans do during Oktoberfest, right? Drink lots of beer. <laughs> and so there they are on the, on, the, on the side of the road over there, kind of tied one on. And Dr. Luther comes along and says, I'll see you in church on Sunday. And he says, oh, no, don't tell me. I have right here. It's got the Pope's own seal on it. I paid good money for it. I've got forgiveness for the one I tied on yesterday, today, and the one I'm going to tie on tomorrow. Of course, Luther, the pastor, was driven to action and wrote those 95 theses, which were then translated into every language, German, French, English, the newfangled printing press put them everywhere, and the price, while it was way up here, the sale went down to nothing. Nobody was buying. So there was an imperial court call. Luther was called to be there, and they put out on the table all of his books, and they say, look, we got two questions for you, buddy. Number one, now remember, the emperor is there, the electors of the empire are there, the representatives of the Pope. So all the power on earth. And here's this one obscure guy from Nowheresville, from little Podunk University, Wittenberg. And everybody's reading his stuff. Hey, we got two questions. Are these your books? Uh-huh. Second question, do you recant? You say they're all rubbish and return to Mother Rome. Well, he says, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. There you are, Christian. What's your authority? The word of God. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and sound reason, I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Well, that took all the air out of the room. (laughs) Who in the world are you? He had been promised safe conduct, and so he goes back, but he was put under the ban. Nobody can support him. Nobody can help him. Books are to be banned. He's supposed to be seized, and probably like John Huss 100 years before, he would have been burned at the stake. But speaking of, as we heard prayer for the civil magistrate, his prince, Frederick the Wise, kidnaps him tells him away to the Wartburg Castle till the heat kind of dies down. There he does another illegal thing. He translates the Bible into German, the common vernacular, most of Central Europe. Matter of fact, here about a month ago, maybe a month and a couple of days, um, uh, it's going to escape me here, who translated the Bible into English was burned at the stake. 
I pray that you will trust and treasure your work, the, your copy of God's word. My friends, this isn't just ancient history, but it's relevant for every one of us about how we stand before God. God declares sinners righteous by constituting us righteous through putting to our account the perfect, stainless righteousness of Jesus Christ. God doesn't test his law, denigrate his holiness in this way. He has provided the perfect substitute who took our sins upon himself. And because he perfectly kept the law in our place and paid the price, he redeemed us. He satisfied God's justice and wrath. And now God comes and gives us the gift of faith. My friend, have you ever seen yourself in this condition and cast yourself upon Christ? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. Oh Lord, our Savior, we thank you. Fill our hearts with gratitude. May we show forth our love for you who have done so much for us. Lord, and I do pray that this good news, which is the power of God to salvation, would go far and wide, that, that, that there would be none here who would lay their head upon a pillow th this afternoon or this evening unless they have indeed come to grips with their sin before a holy God, casting themselves upon you, O Christ, completely. So they can say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And they can pray that with the assurance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for them. Oh Lord, let us bring this good news to all far and wide. And we pray the powerful working of your spirit upon it. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.